0: They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. Hello! Welcome to Iconosass. This is M.K. Lords, and this is another edition of Iconosass Peters Out, where I am covering the 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos by Jordan B. Peterson. So this one is gonna be special, I think, because I found a chapter that I actually like, and I got some feedback from the last... Episode where people were like, you were sighing a lot, and I was because I was like so tired. I was so tired of a lot of the bullshit. But this this chapter is pretty interesting to me and it, it resonated a lot with me because it's all about friendship. And the episode or I'm sorry, the episode, the chapter is called Make Friends with People Who Want the Best For You and it's kind of hard for me to disagree with this advice. I really think that I've, of all the things that I've kind of failed at in my life, I think I've done a pretty good job of finding really good people and holding on to them, and I can definitely say that without some of the friends in my life, I'm not sure if I would be here right now. They've definitely supported me in really, really difficult times and I hope that, you know, I've also been a good friend to them and I do want the best for my friends. And so as a premise, like, this is really solid stuff, right? Um, He kind of starts the chapter off with talking about his hometown and the kind of, depressive nature of living in a small town in Canada and the kind of hopelessness that goes along with, you know, some of the conditions that were there. Um, it's something that I definitely relate to having come out of a kind of smallish town and seeing a lot of my friends struggle with meaning and meaninglessness and you know, mobility and just trying trying to get out or any kind of momentum to kind of get out or realizing, like, you know, do you really need to get out to have this kind of better life for yourself and all that? Uh, What are the kinds of relationships in your life that are meaningful to you and where can you find those? Can you go outside of your hometown to find them? Can you kind of rely on the people there with you? And of course, at the end of this, I'm going to give you the Queer Eye episode that explains this chapter, I think, better than Jordan Peterson does. (laughs) So stay tuned um, till the end so you can hear that because I think they make some really good points and they kind of come to slightly different conclusions than Peterson. So... I kind of want to start with some of my notes like a, a lot of this chapter is him complaining about his hometown and complaining about the meaninglessness of things like parties when he was a teenager he uh really talks down about it he you know didn't like how loud the music was and how much everyone's getting drunk and you know causing causing a havoc and you know they're you can't have any kind of meaningful conversations and as a kind of nerdy person i guess myself i kind of can empathize with that i definitely remember parties when i was in high school and i kind of viewed them as more of an escape and like a a trying to connect with people who were very different from me and i think this is a, a good thing to kind of get out of your comfort zone with um but he's very harsh about it. He, he even says, there's there's a line, there were always a couple of town psychopaths attending. Which, like, I, again, I, I don't like to... I don't know that I would necessarily diagnose people psychopaths, but uh, there you go. But this obviously wasn't working for him. He found that he didn't really maybe fit in, I guess. He found a lot of these things kind of meaningless and people were just kind of biding their time doing what exactly and then he kind of goes into what teenage life kind of felt like where he uh there's this whole section about um we were all too prematurely cynical and world weary and leery of responsibility to stick to the debating clubs and air cadets and school sports that the adults around us tried to organize doing anything wasn't cool I don't know what teenage like. Li- I don't know what teenage life was like before the revolutionaries of the late sixties advised everyone to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Was it okay for a teenager to belong wholeheartedly to a club in 1955? Because it certainly wasn't. Twenty years later, plenty of us turned on and dropped out, but not so many of us tuned in. So, taking that part, there's a lot in that kind of section. That's interesting. Um, part of it is this is going to be the natural attitude of some teenagers when you reach that age where you find out a lot of the people that you looked up to are maybe not such great role models and you start realizing that you were lied to about a lot of things. There is a cynicism that kind of creeps in and I definitely experienced that when I was a teenager. I was... Oh my god, such a little hellion. And, um, you know, I was frustrated. I, I was frustrated that, like, um, there was so much hypocrisy and lies and stuff like that. So, the kind of, like, cynical nature of teenagers, I, a lot of that's an age thing. Some people don't grow out of it. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I've, I know I sometimes have a very still cynical worldview of things. I don't know that my worldview is always the rosiest. It could be, um, but I also don't know how much of that is my experience, how much of it is my personality, all of that. I don't, and I don't like to paint in such broad strokes. I think, like generally, the kind of hopelessness or the kind of angst of most teenagers comes from like a combination of many factors. A lot of it's realizing these things, and a lot of it's hormonal. You're having a hard time dealing with all of these different bodily changes you're going through and the chemicals involved in that. I know I certainly did. It was a very confusing time for me. But I don't know. And again, I can't speak for this period of time because Peterson would have been coming of age in the 70s. So... He talks about how not being part of any club was cool and, you know, wondering, was it okay for people to belong to clubs in 1955? And, yeah, I guess I'm sure it was. I I think this is kind of like a bigger problem of his that I've talked about before. This is going to be an overarching problem with his book, is his way of idealizing and romanticizing the past. So... (sighs) He seems to have this view of the 50s as a very kind of like Norman Rockwell, nice, you know, view of like the nuclear family and owning a house and the American dream. And it's a dream that didn't exist for a lot of people in the country. Again, like a lot of people and a lot of conservatives especially romanticize this period of time. And it was only that way for kind of middle class and upper classes of white people. Um, You didn't have any kind of protections for marginalized people. And again, I mean, I'm not necessarily trustworthy of government giving protections to anyone or anything like that. But I mean, socially, if you were different from that kind of Norman Rockwell idyllic family, if you didn't quite fit into certain boxes, your life was a lot more difficult, especially if you were a black person or a person of color. This whole idea of like, oh, the fifties were so great, really is something held by a a certain amount of white conservative and sometimes liberal men. Um, And I've never found it particularly useful as a metric to gauge anything by you know i mean i i don't get to uh even live in the current day as you know someone who had you know all of those same kinds of privileges even though i am privileged in a lot of other ways so his romanticized view of the 50s is rather boring and typical of men his age though so whatever um, and he's saying, well, it wasn't cool to be part of a club, like a debate club or something like that, 20 years later into the 70s. Again, I can't really speak for that time, but both of my parents grew up, or my, actually my father grew up in the 70s. And he was very active from what I had, from the stories he's told me in various clubs and things like that. So did a lot of other uh, people his age. There, I don't know that there was as much of I don't know how much of a phenomenon this actually was as opposed to something that did historically happen in he's he talking about the 60s countercultural movement something that did historically happen that like you know some people did backlash too because of and he does seem to have a more kind of conservative take on things like conservative preferences like I I reading this chapter, you really get a good insight into who he was as a teenager and young adult. And it seems like he's been fairly consistent throughout his life, that he's preferred more conservative norms, more, um, you know, traditional ways of living. And uh, there's anything wrong with that. Anyone can choose to live however they want. But he does want that to kind of be a norm for things and that that's where we kind of run into problems and he again you can kind of see this preference for this lifestyle and then this idealized way of viewing the 50s as if this lifestyle was, you know, the best way for people to live as if it increased happiness the most or anything like that yeah i'm not sure i'm not going to make value judgments on that um but he seems to really not be into the whole Timothy Leary, tune in, turn on, drop out kind of idea that a lot of other people uh, in the generation previous to him were probably a part of. So he needs a few more, uh, you know, he, he needs maybe more standards, he maybe, maybe needs, you know, a little more security in some of his areas and you you can kind of see this when he starts criticizing his friends later in the chapter so again post counterculture the world kind of opened up to new ideas and new ways of thinking that were not necessarily there previously So a lot of things were changing, and he kind of, it seems like he kind of found himself in flux, and he found himself very much against the cynicism and resentment that a lot of his, uh, maybe, cohorts had um, during this time. A kind of, like, you know, maybe drifting meaninglessness. Um... I'll just kind of speak from my own experience uh, as far as, like, the school club stuff. I mean, I grew up in the 90s, and uh, the school club thing was a big thing then. I Like, there wasn't... Even as a teenager, like, I don't know that, like, it ever reached the level of cynicism that he's referring to. I mean, I could be wrong, but, like, I just don't know that it ever... Reach that level, even as I was growing up in the super horrible uh, postmodern '90s, where you know everything was really going to shit. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, that was sarcasm. Uh, the '90s were a very interesting time, <laughs> but I—I uh, don't know. He judged people for looking down on people who looked down on people who wanted to join clubs and kind of social activities in and out of schooling so okay that's a totally valid position to hold you know whatever i mean i i guess me and jordan peterson probably wouldn't have hung out when we were teenagers so put it that way um i wasn't i wasn't the biggest clubs person either um you know, but I don't know that that was a position that was generally held by the kids around me at that time. So, I could be wrong. So, but he talks a lot about the kind of feeling of being trapped and then kind of seeing his friends. He, he'll, he gets into psychoanalyzing his friends later on to um, this kind of feeling of being trapped in your hometown and wanting something more out of life. And I really identify with that because I very much felt that way. I was like, I needed to get out as soon as possible. And instead of being able to do that, I got sidetracked, I guess. I ended up not doing that until much later in life. But he needed to get out. He needed to build something better for himself, which I totally support. He talks about going to college, he was extremely happy to go to college, he could find more like-minded companions, um, all of these things, and this is why college is a great experience to have if you are privileged and fortunate enough to be able to go to college, which not all of us are. So, but he, he seemed to have a really good time, and he liked that he could reinvent himself. And... I, I, again, this is something I identify with, and here's a quote that I kind of highlighted. You can't escape who you've been. Everything wasn't online then, and thank God for that, but it was stored equally indelibly in everyone's spoken and unspoken expectations and memory. So, this in reference to reinventing yourself and rebuilding yourself, and there's also, I mean, since he's going to psychoanalyze everyone, I'm just going to Psychoanalyzed him a little bit and for the record i've talked about this before i don't give a whole lot of like weight to this because psychoanalysis i mean it's making up shit about people as if you know them and you're in your head their head and i don't really like that but since he does it so much in this chapter i'm gonna do it a little bit give him a taste of his own medicine um what that section says to me is that he's, maybe he always hasn't been such a great dude or a great friend. This whole, uh, you can't escape who you've been, it is true. Uh, lies will follow you around, um, and you your personality is going to be somewhat fixed in some ways throughout your life. And, I mean, it can be changed. Everything can change and everyone can change and everyone can be redeemed, I know. But, like, some people, most people, I would say, are going to have a certain kind of fixed personality and kind of reactions to things. I know that's very simplified, but, yeah. Um, And, I don't know, he seems to have wanted to escape whatever it is that he was that he left behind. So why don't we look into what he had left behind because he goes and flashes back uh, after he says, you know, when you move, it's great because there are all these new possibilities in the midst of this chaos and you can make better things and, uh, you know, and, all of this stuff and it's and it's great it's a phoenix like experience but then he starts talking about his friends and specifically when he was 15 and he went to hang out with some friends and they ended up going to another town and just drinking and when he would go back and visit his his friends in these in his hometown He just kind of found them very, uh, lackluster, I guess. They, they weren't into the same things. They weren't into the same lifestyles. His friends wanted to drink and smoke weed and he wanted to do other things, I assume. So he didn't really like, uh, the company, you know, that he went on with this trip. Um... And he found that his friends who stayed behind were kind of, they, they didn't quite progress with their life in the same ways that he did. And this sometimes happens in small towns or towns of any kind, really. I mean, I guess there's going to be people who are, are more content with their lives the way they are and don't really need to seek out more meaning and more stimulation and there will be other people who aren't and there are some people in between and all that um so i identify a lot with peterson's need to have more stimulation and get out and see more of the world and not just settle for the same kinds of people and experiences or whatever that were in your hometown i i can understand that um But I am not fully sold on that notion, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, So he tells a story about his friend, Ed, who was a very smart person who seemed that uh, Peterson seemed to think he had a lot of potential. And uh, one day, you know, his friend moves to the city and he invites him over and he's all excited to see his friend, Ed. And... It turns out that he, Ed seems like he was maybe, I don't know, the way he describes Ed, like, he goes, Ed showed up older, balder, and stooped. He was a lot more not doing so well young adult, and a lot less youthful possibility. This happens with age sometimes. Yes, that's, is what it is, I guess. His eyes were the telltale red slits of the practiced stoner. And he said this guy hadn't achieved much with his life because he had taken some, like, manual labor-type jobs. But uh, he found himself, you know, older now, and that, that didn't seem to be very, you know, it didn't seem to be good enough. And Ed also brought his friend. And his friend come over, his friends come over, Peterson's sister was also there and had known Ed from before, And they sat down and just hanging out, um, and they were both stoned, it turns out. Stoned out of their gourd. Oh boy. So, and then, like, the next few paragraphs are just kind of him judging his friend Ed. Um, and then eventually he gets so frustrated with them just kind of being stoned and sitting there saying things like, my particles are scattered all over the ceiling. Like, real, kind of like, hippy-dippy stoner stuff, and Peterson was drinking beer and stuff, too. But Peterson gets super offended by this, and he takes his friend aside and tells him that they gotta leave. And that he shouldn't have brought his useless bastard of a companion. So, again, as someone who prides my myself with the friendships I have in my life, and have been friends with also a really wide variety of people, too, like, I have found myself often among different, very different types of subcultures and stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't know, I kind of have a very, I guess, laissez-faire attitude when it comes to people's lifestyle preferences. I am, I've been friends with straight edge people and people who like to party and everyone in between. And it's not really something that I judge someone's moral character on. Which he kind of seems like he's doing here, uh, and yeah, sometimes you're if you're if you're someone who doesn't want to participate in certain activities or be in certain scenes, that's your right, and I totally support it. And like, I support everyone finding friends to kind of lift them up. But he didn't seem very interested in kind of lifting these friends up and he didn't even seem really interested in even tolerating their presence, which I find kind of I mean, I guess it's weird to me. I'm a i am but I'm a super tolerant person. <laughs> I don't know, I like as that I'm so just kind of like whatever in whatever situation I am. Like I, I, I'm in. I would never tell someone to leave and take his useless bastard of a companion with him over just being stoned on my couch. I, like, I've, I've thrown parties before. I've, I've removed people from my parties. I've told them they had to leave and it was always because of disorderly behavior and, you know, inappropriate behavior in some kind of way. So how... How can we be good friends to each other, as far as lifting each other up and holding each other accountable, while having a, a balance of like a gentleness and a kind of understanding and, and tolerant approach to things? I don't find hard line. I mean, everyone should, everyone deserves to have their standards and associate with whoever they want to associate with. Uh, for me personally, I wouldn't throw someone out of my house over something like that. I definitely wouldn't make that kind of, I wouldn't make that point at all either. That's a rather blunt way of kind of putting things. Um, but whatever, That's he's entitled to that and he's allowed to do that. I'm kind of a meet people where they're at, not where you want them to be kind of person. And Peterson talked a lot in the previous paragraphs about his friend about how much potential he had. And if only he could just realize that potential and be smart enough to fulfill that potential. And I think when you see that in someone, when you you are constantly saying, oh, well, I see this kind of potential, it creates these expectations in your mind where you then hold people to these expectations that you've invented. And it's not very realistic. Expectations are desires about the future. And it's fine to have them, but I've found that a lot of times they can be often somewhat damaging and will at least can hurt your feelings or let you down in pretty big ways. He clearly had a lot of expectations for this meeting with his friend. Um, And they did not live up to those expectations, and he reacted in a pretty extreme way. And you can have all of you can see all of the potential in the world with someone and still not be capable of helping them reach that potential. I've learned this in relationships and friendships, and I can agree with Peterson if his point is that. Because you want the best for someone, you shouldn't let them just kind of skate by and do nothing and just kind of let themselves hurt themselves. I, I do want the best for my friends. I want to lift them up and support them. And if I think they're doing something destructive or damaging, then I'm likely to say something. And I would hope that they say it to me. And I have good enough friends that they do. But they're also understanding and empathetic and tolerant enough to underst- to know that I'm not always going to be a perfect person. I don't expect perfection from people. I don't expect them to always be at their top potential every time. I know that sometimes we're gonna have bad days. We're not going to be consistent with what we say and how we act sometimes. We're going to yell sometimes, or we're going to let, you know, we're going to do things that in other conditions we might never have. So when it comes to friendships, I do value a degree of flexibility over this kind of need to take someone to task over any kind of perceived hypocrisies. And I, I, don't always do this well at all. I'm super flawed when it comes to this because in my own mind, I do have very high standards for myself and I am very hard on myself when I don't achieve those standards. I've had to go through a lot of therapy to like, you know, undo a lot of that. And I try to be a lot more gentle, even way, way more gentle with other people than I do myself. And I think friends who want the best for you also, um, our understanding of that, you know, there, there is that degree of tolerance and acceptance, but he, you know, I, I, I questioned, I guess my, my critique of this chapter, it's not with the premise, it's more with Peterson's personal interactions and questioning his own hypocrisy, kind of displayed in this chapter, and question. The, the question I have is: Was Peterson a good friend himself? Was he someone who wanted the best for his friends and wanted to lift them up in these various situations? I don't know. I I think telling someone to get the hell out and take his useless bastard of a companion with him is a bit bit harsh. But you know, whatever. People can decide their own comfort levels, and that's fine. But then, instead of just accepting that some people are different and some people have different lifestyle preferences, he instead goes to psychoanalyze another one of his friends named Chris. And he describes Chris, he had described him earlier in the, in the chapter as someone with a lot of potential, too. But as Chris got older, he started to have certain problems that were coming to the surface. He mentioned earlier in the, in the book that Chris had some kind of dark secret that he never found out about maybe because Chris didn't feel comfortable enough telling his, his friend, Jordan Peterson. Um, But he had some kind of issue that kind of seemed to haunt him through his life. And someone who's dealt with a pretty complex life that's caused, you know, all sorts of weird repercussions. I can definitely understand that, I can understand why people wouldn't want to talk about it, especially a man growing up in the 70s. Men have a hard time talking about what's happened to them traumatically now. And it's 2018, and men still have these, these problems with being able to talk about their emotions and talk about what's happened to them. You know, and they receive a lot of backlash still when they do. And I can't imagine how much harder it was back then. Because everything was harder for people back then, even though it was just the 70s. (laughs) Things were very different. Um, And, you know, it wasn't something, it wasn't a priority for men to sit around and talk about their feelings. And I think that's a sad thing. I I don't look back on those years is like the golden years of male emotional healthiness and friendships but whatever Jordan Peterson wants to take us back even further to the 50s where it was even worse than the 70s as far as that whole very specific topic of male uh vulnerability so he's talking about his friend Chris who had a psychotic break in his 30s and He says, after flirting with insanity for many years, and not long afterward, he committed suicide. And then he goes on to speculate, did his heavy marijuana use play a magnifying role, or was it an understandable self-medication? And, again, Chris was another friend of his who liked to use cannabis. And I've heard some therapists, I have had a therapist tell me that oh, marijuana use can fundamentally change someone's personality and make, you know, contribute to really bad things. And I really, I think that's a really anti-scientific take. Look, I get it. You don't like being around weed smoke. That's fine. That's totally, like, again, great. Maybe he tried marijuana and it didn't work for him. And that's also an outdated term. I prefer to use the term cannabis uh, because of the, bad history of the term marijuana so cannabis has been extremely helpful for me in dealing with my whatever like (laughs) problems but I can understand that it can be a problem for some people but he kind of speculates a lot about oh well maybe it was his his cannabis use or then he goes into this whole thing he uh starts bringing up philosophy he goes was it the nihilistic philosophy he nurtured that paved the way to his eventual breakdown was that nihilism in turn a consequence of genuine ill health or just an intellectual rationalization of his unwillingness to dive responsibility into his life why did he like his cousin like my other friends continually choose people who and places that were not good for him okay there's a lot here so first of all like psychoanalyzing your dead friend like that in a book is kind of it makes me feel a little cringy personally that's just my personal preferences whatever uh it's kind of an asshole thing to do especially when you don't really know what caused that when when someone commits suicide you don't know always what cost is. Sometimes they leave a note, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you're left wondering forever, and sometimes they had a very good reason for doing what they're doing. But the thing is, when you start speculating about that, you kind of come off as a bit of an asshole. And then you try to blame it on marijuana use and nihilistic philosophy. First of all, let's talk a little bit about nihilism. I would classify myself as some kind of nihilist. I have since high school, probably, since I first found out what it was. And the, when I say nihilist, I mean in the sense that there is not an objective meaning to life. That we create our own meaning. And I view it as a very positive thing. In fact, nihilism has helped me get through some of the darkest times in my life. With a degree of levity and humor that I don't know, maybe it doesn't do that for other people, but it has been very helpful for me. It gave me the idea that instead of being like, oh, everything is meaningless, it's like, oh, everything is meaningless, yeah, like, I can do whatever I want. It's actually very inspiring to me. And I'm working on a bigger project with this whole kind of concept, too, that I'm I'm really excited to share with you all as I start kind of getting into that more. But this has been a very positive thing for me. And it it can be a very negative thing for people. I can understand why, if you've been taught that life is meaningful your entire life or that certain things are meaningful and have this grander, broader, objective meaning, that it can be very destabilizing very upsetting to find out that, well, actually, no, things are kind of a little more subjective than that, and uh, kind of seems like everyone's making it up as they go. So it can be very destabilizing. But to blame a suicide on a kind of nihilistic outlook on life, just kind of, again, this shows his agenda in the book. And he said many times he doesn't have an agenda, he just cares about the truth and stuff like that. But it's very clear that his agenda with this book, again, stated right in the title, to provide an antidote to chaos. And he sees nihilism as extremely chaotic. Because there's no objective standards and meaning and stuff like that. And it's a kind of, I think, a very rudimentary way of thinking about nihilism. And... He's trying to hide that he has an agenda while very plainly showing it. He very clearly disapproves of certain behaviors and lifestyles, and he very clearly wants people to believe that there are kind of higher meanings to things and all of that. So, again, he can believe that. That's fine. But don't try and tell me your dead friend killed himself because he you know, it was a nihilist stoner, okay? Look, I'm a nihilist stoner, doing actually pretty good. <laughs> like, any kinds of, you know, problems with that stuff don't, I don't really think come from my nihilism or my stonerism or anything like that. And I think he, uh, he very much has the idea that if everyone just kind of lived like him, they would be happy, but he's clearly not a happy person. So... He kind of goes into why we fail, too, in the next section. Like, he, he kind of goes against the notion of sticking around people who are indulging in the same things you're indulging in, that are maybe holding you back, and kind of ew, calling out some of their motives as being bad. Um And he's saying, you know, you don't really want to lift yourself up when you're hanging out with these people who are dragging you down, you're just making excuses, you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, that whole kind of thing. Uh, He's very much against the notion of helping someone who's in trouble kind of goes off on, before you help someone, you should find out why that person is in trouble. You shouldn't merely assume that he or she is a noble victim of unjust circumstances and exploitation. And then he says, it's probably their fault anyway. (laughs) Like, This is a part I really disagree with. Because, well, yeah, of course, before you help someone, you should probably verify that they're not a scam artist. But your good friends, the people that are in your life that actually know you... You can vouch for their experiences and what they've actually gone through enough to know that they're probably not lying. They're probably not a terrible person. You know, like, he has a, like, I've been called cynical, but I think he has an extreme, a much more cynical view of friendship than I do. So he says, oh, well, it's much more likely that a given individual has just decided to reject the path upward because of its difficulty. Basically, if things are too hard, people aren't going to do them. And that's the real explanation for why someone isn't thriving. I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think depending on, and this is something he doesn't really talk about in this chapter, but you can't. You can't hide that he comes from a middle-class background. And when you start in the middle class, you're already starting on a pretty easy level. Especially if you have white skin, for example. If you start in Canada or the United States as a white man, you kind of won the jackpot as far as you know, how easy your life is starting off with, especially if you have non-abusive parents. So that's like, you know, the jackpot there. Uh, You know, maybe it is kind of on you if you fail to thrive in that incredibly supportive environment. So I'm, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing a bit. I think, like, his perspective on this whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing is very specific to his experience and his understanding of some of these things that he wants to say don't exist but actually do things like white privilege and uh class i mean class advantage is huge people never want to talk about class issues but it's a big difference coming from the middle class than it is the working class or poorer classes uh you don't have the same opportunities it's not that you're rejecting an upwardly mobile path because it's hard. It's because there are so many barriers placed in front of you that some of them are completely insurmountable. Some of them, you know, are, are going to cause you lifelong problems. Maybe the, this is a book, you know, written by a middle class dude. Well, now he's way upper class. Um, actually, he was an academic before, so he's already in the upper class. So written by an upper class dude from the middle class for middle class people. So maybe, and I've maybe said this before, I'm not probably the audience for this book. Uh, but yeah, it's a very specific view that, that you hear in a lot of self-help books. This is my over, uh, bigger critique with self-help books is kind of how unrelatable they are to working class people. Um, I'll get into that a little Um, But I'm very curious what the stats are on that. Like, why do people not thrive when given everything they need to thrive? You know, is it because of personal choice? They reject that, it's too hard? Or are there other reasons? I don't know. But he starts just railing against people who are asking for help. Now, if, again, to kind of bring a class analysis into this... You are less likely to ask help from people if you come from certain classes, too. It's seen as somewhat shameful. It's seen as... I've had to do a lot of work personally to reach out and ask for help from people. Because it's a source of shame for me. That's how I was taught. That's how I was raised. That you just gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you, you know you got to do everything on your own because no one's going to have your back. And no one's going to help you ever. And that's a sad world to have to live in. And this is the world that he kind of wants. And it's important to critique this stuff because he has an agenda. And he very clearly has a worldview. And he has an idea of how things are going to be better if you just follow this agenda. So what is his agenda? This is what I'm getting to, is he has a very, yeah, again, a very specific goal he's trying to accomplish here while saying he isn't, which is completely dishonest and I hate. Uh, But he kind of launches into this critique of asking for help, or this uh, critique of kind of living in the moment and trying to just kind of take the pleasures as they come. He goes, he asks this question, how do I know that your suffering is not the demand of martyrdom for my resources so that you can also momentarily stave off the inevitable Wow Like this is a thought that I guess as someone who hasn't had a lot of resources <laughs> is, has like never entered into my mind. Like whenever a friend of mine has asked me for help or whenever I see someone pleading for help on the, like randomly, publicly on, on the internet or something, it never occurs to me. Again, this is just talking about my friends. I'm not talking about strangers. I'm talking about people I actually know. When someone's crying out for help, it doesn't occur to me immediately that they're trying to pilfer my resources. If you have reached, and especially with a lot of the people I know, if you're reaching such a state of desperation that you're you're asking for help, then things must be really bad. Most of the time, it's it's a humbling, hard thing to do to ask for a helping hand. There's no kind of pride in it. An example is I I have done homeless outreach before and. and You know, they're always extremely grateful for what you're doing, but the conversations I've had with them, the looks in their eyes, like, they feel ashamed that they have to rely on a stranger for help. It's incredibly sad. And it comes out of such desperation, desperation, by the way, that normal middle-class people don't have to fear and don't ever have to experience. These are people who have tried to pick themselves up by their bootstraps as many times as possible until those bootstraps just broke. And they had to ask for help. I can't think of a less charitable way to treat your friends than to assume bad intentions when they ask you for help. And to assume that they're just trying to get their hands on your resources. That's so, that's such a scarcity mindset that I don't, that's hard for me to even understand. Now I'm skeptical as hell. People know that I'm the type of asshole who, I call bullshit when I see it. And if someone is trying to scam me, I'm very quick to call something a scam. You know, I've, I've worked in the Bitcoin space. You know, I think most of those projects are scams. I'm not afraid to say it. I've done political activism. I think so many political groups are scams, and so many people who are involved in activism and politics are scam artists and shit like that. And I'm very quick to say that, and I've built a reputation on a lot of that. But I do not apply those same levels of skepticism and criticism to the people who are closest to me because I know I can count on myself to pick good people and so this is a very paranoid and he's an an extremely paranoid person by the way it's a very paranoid way of thinking about your friends is he being a good friend I don't know He kind of goes on, he keeps bitching, Uh, he says, Maybe your misery is a demand placed on me so that I fail too, so that the gap you so painfully feel between us can be reduced while you degenerate and sink. How do I know that you would refuse to play such a game? Oh, you know what, Jordan, I have an answer to that. Because most people aren't sociopaths? And if you find yourself surrounded by sociopaths, what does that say about you? You know, if we're going to flip the script a little bit here. That what a bizarre, again, this this is like some bizarre paranoid thinking in the midst of an otherwise good point. And this, again, goes to one of my biggest criticisms of him, which is he starts off with a good point. Good premise, hard to disagree with the premise. Then towards the middle, he veers into crazy town. He veers into well, how do you know your friends aren't just trying to use you and take your resources? Like, wait, what? Hold on. We went from talking about how we should try to better our circumstances and lift ourselves out of these bad, uh, maybe living situations we're in and find new people who are better friends to, oh, but like you got to watch out because your friends are trying to rip you off. It's just an odd assumption to make. It's just like, what did, what, to ask you, to even ask these questions reveals the mindset that he's in, which is a very fearful, fear-based, scarcity-based, paranoid, n- and it's not based in reality kind of mindset. So, you yeah, know, maybe he should psychoanalyze his dead friends a little bit less and worry about his own issues here, okay? Gosh. And he goes on even more. This, this one, I, I had to highlight so much in this section because I was just like, whoa, because it, it takes such a sharp shift. And it, all of a sudden, you're like in a, an entirely different book, it feels like. So this is awful, what he says now. Maybe your misery is the weapon you brandish in your hatred for those who rose upward while you waited and sank. Maybe your misery is your attempt to prove the world's injustice instead of the evidence of your own sin, your own missing the mark, your conscious refusal to strive and to live. Okay, yes, there are some people like that. I've met these people who are only happy when they're miserable, who are only happy when they have something to to complain about and will do everything they can to drag you down. Those people exist. I don't count them among my friends. And I, if he is seemingly surrounded by so many of these people, then I guess he could listen to his own advice. But to like speculate on this is so bizarre. And then he uses I highlighted, you know, instead of the evidence of your own sin. So he is someone who like, literally believes in original sin. I just want to remind all the listeners of his own religious beliefs. And he does talk about sin and stuff like that. Of course, in this context, it's not necessarily original sin. It's it's like you being a slacker. <laughs> so that he's viewing his, his friends or, or, I guess, random people who ask him for help as these kind of sinful, like, terrible people who are always trying to drag everyone down is just so uncharitable. You know, and, and again, I say that as a very skeptical, not always super nice, optimistic person. But this is, like, really some next-level cynicism right now. It's so sad. And, again, his book's popular because it says the same old self-help stuff you've heard a million times, which is, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try to be better, you know, just keep going, you know, whatever. And, again, it's useful if you have nice bootstraps. If your bootstraps are from Walmart, maybe we're going to have a different thing. If your bootstraps are from the thrift store, if your, boot, if your bootstraps were hand-me-downs, maybe you're going to have a harder time. And maybe it's better to be a little bit more compassionate for people who've had these hurdles placed in front of them, who've had a lot more hurdles than you placed in front of them. I don't think that's a radical thing to say. I have sympathy for people who have it worse off than me. I don't look at them as failures, as people who have failed to thrive and they just refuse to strive and make their lives better. I view them as people who are trying their best, despite really awful circumstances. And, yeah. Again, he's extremely uncharitable in this whole section. Uh, He seems to think of friendships as very... uh, I guess, quantifiable, you know? And it's it's not that, like, he kind of goes into a section called a reciprocal agreement. Now, of course, you don't want to be spending your time and energy on someone who's not reciprocating it. That's fine. But I don't really think you can categorize it and make it a tit-for-tat kind of quantifiable thing. That's not how I think of my friendships at all. You know, I think of them as, you know, know, rather fluid and... Somewhat changing, and like I'm not like keeping tabs on all the times I helped out a friend of mine, and I, I hope my friends aren't tallying up everything. I mean, I'm already really embarrassed sometimes by how much my friends, some of my friends, have really helped me out. You know, and I, I, I do feel a sense of debt to them, and a sense of like I, you know, want to be in a better place so that I can, you know, be a better friend or kind of rebalance the reciprocity, but I don't go through weird tallyings and stuff like that. Um, and he kind of seems to get into that. Uh, he says, friendship is a reciprocal arrangement. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it. He goes on to say, you are not morally obliged to support someone who is making the world a worse place. Quite the opposite. You should choose people who want things to be better. Not worse. I agree. Except for the weird reciprocal. I mean, yeah, it's a reciprocal arrangement. I get what he was saying, but, like, he this is someone who, like, does the tit-for-tat stuff. You can already tell. You can tell by the way he speaks about his former friends and the way he views the world. that This guy's stingy with his friendships and a lot of other things in his life because he views things as scarce. He views resources as scarce instead of abundant, and I don't know, I don't know really how to even change that mind, it's it's a mindset, you know, I don't know how someone fixes that, but you just have to, I guess, experience life differently, and experience that, experience better friendships, experience the joy and abundance that the people who love you can bring to your life, and who aren't gonna, like, judge you so harshly for things and have, like, a tit-for-tat kind of approach. Because when, at least what I found when it comes to friendships, it all comes back around. You know, like, the work that you put in, if it's a solid friendship, it comes back around. Like, there's there doesn't have to be a worry of, like, oh, are they gonna reciprocate my feelings? Or, oh, are they gonna, like, still care about me? Because, yeah, they will. You can trust yourself that you've picked good friends. And I can trust myself that I've picked good friends. And, you know, Jordan doesn't really, uh, I don't know that he completely disbelieves that or anything like that. I'm not trying to put words into his mouth. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you do need to have a bit of a balance with things. I think you, of course, should be friends with people who want things to be better, I mean, that's another reason why I'm friends with the people I'm friends with, is they can look towards the future and they can see a better world and they can see how they can be a part of it, and they want things to progress and live in the future and be better. I don't know that I could say the same thing of someone like Jordan Peterson. He doesn't want the world to be better. He wants the world to go back to 1955 where you could be part of a club. These are very different worldviews. And, again, his worldview, the the ways that he even approaches things like friendship, show how kind of warped his agenda is. (sighs) So yeah, he's not wrong when he says you're not morally obliged to support someone who's making the world a worse place. Of course, like, he's not wrong at all. But... I would hope that, again, you wouldn't categorize your friends making mistakes as being malintentioned and making the world a worse place. He seems to have just a very kind of binary view of friendship or something. Um, I don't know. This this chapter, again, can't agree more with the premise, but then you get towards the middle and you get to the end and you're just like, oh, okay, well, that kind of went off the rails, didn't it? Well, anyway, that's my critique of the chapter. And speaking of abundance and speaking of scarcity and all that, I found the perfect Queer Eye episode. That, again, this is why I love Queer Eye, they take these notions and they explore them in a really fun way and they don't waste nearly as much of your time and you don't have to read Jordan Peterson shit talking about his dead friends. Instead, you can watch this Queer Eye episode which is called The Handyman Can, and this episode is Season 2, Episode 4. If you want to look it up on Netflix, it is so heartwarming and so good. And this is about a man named Jason, who's a burner, a guy who goes to Burning Man, and he wants to move across the country to Reno from Atlanta. And he has this really awesome group of friends in Atlanta and Burning Man too, But he doesn't really know how much they appreciate him and how much they want to help him. He's someone who's found himself in a bit of a rut. He's kind of doing these handyman jobs. He's having a hard time having aspirations for what he wants to be in life and do in life. He's getting into his middle age, and he thinks that if he uproots everything about his life and moves to Reno, that that will change his situation. Well, the Queer Eye guys come in, and they kind of give him the the whole notion is, hey, look, you have this awesome support system here of people who have, like, all these nice things to say about you, and why not focus on the relationships you have, and you know, being with the people who love you and support you in healthy ways, you're good friends, and, you know, work on your own place a little bit, instead of just abandoning it to start over and try something new, but maybe having a harder time with friends or whatever. Um, and his friends are very honest, like, there's this whole scene where the Queer Eye guys are talking to his group of friends, and they're all saying... Oh, yeah, no, Jason, we love him so much. He's just so, so sweet and so awesome. He kind of seems a little bit adrift. He kind of seems like he's stuck and doesn't really know what he wants. But like, we want to help him and he helps us and it's super, super great. And uh, one of his friends says uh, this line that I love, it's don't rest in peace, live in peace. And it's really nice. Like, in, in in the chapter of Jordan Peterson's, like, he has this whole section where he critiques this kind of, like, living-in-the-moment kind of mindset, the kind of, like, not planning for the future and just kind of living in, in the present moment. And I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think that's a weird way to think of things. Obviously, you can plan things out, and you can enjoy whatever present moment you're currently in to the fullest. Like, you can have both. Um, so what this... What I think this episode does is not only make Jordan Peterson's points better, but also contradicts some of his points and puts them through a healthier lens of abundance instead of scarcity. And what I mean by this is they do encourage Jason to try harder and to kind of, you know, pick himself up by the bootstraps, but also like lean on his friends that are already there to do that. And one of the things that Jason says, Jason very much is someone that Jordan Peterson is talking about in this chapter, Jason goes, I haven't failed much because I haven't tried much. He's so afraid to strive because he's afraid he'll fail. And his friends have picked up on that. But maybe he just needed a good kick in the pants and that's where the queer eye guys came in that's what they do they kind of revamp his life a little bit they show him that instead of challenging himself by maybe moving across the country and not having you know that much of a plan maybe stay put and try harder to pull it together and lean on your friends a little bit more appreciate what you have in your life and so, the whole point is leading up to this big going away party that he's throwing for himself, where he invites all of his friends and they get up individually and they tell him how much he means to them and how much he, they love him. It's really, really moving to watch. I was like, I cry every time I watch it because you just realize that, like, you know, his friends were trying to say, Look, we were, we've been here for you the whole time. You can lean on us. Like, don't be such an island. You know, don't be such a hard ass about trying to do everything on your own, because we're here for you. And those are good friends. Those are people who do want the best for him. And they're not doing it in a weird underhanded way. This isn't like they sabotaged his move to Reno or anything like that. They're all just like genuinely expressing how much they'll miss him and how much like he doesn't have to be afraid to like reach out you know, ask them for help. It's incredibly touching. And by the end of it, he realizes that he has everything he needs to succeed right there in Atlanta. And I think it's kind of, uh, again, the inverse of what Jordan Peterson goes through in the chapter and what I've done in my own life too, which is like tried so hard to escape my, my hometown because I thought there were greener pastures, and maybe there were in some ways. But I also realize what is there and that I can't fully escape those experiences. And and I don't want to escape the people I've met there. I've met some of the most awesome, coolest people who were closest to me and dear friends of mine from my hometown. And we've all had our hard times where we've struggled trying to come out of that place. And there have been friends that, like, were in that group that Jordan Peterson talked about where they are just trying to drag you down and they aren't going to get better. And they're completely crushed by the hopelessness of their situation. But I've encountered just as many people who were like, you know what? I'm going to make the best of this situation. You know, I, I'm... I'm going to stay here and I'm going to build a family, or I'm going to build something that I really love, or I'm going to get active in my community. I'm not going to run away from this. I'm going to make it better. And those are the people that I tend to be friends with no matter where I go in the world. And those people want the best for their communities, and they want the best for themselves, and they want the best for you. And you can, fi- you can find those people anywhere. You can find them around the world. You can find them in your hometown. What's important is that you do have those friends who want the best for you and who will encourage you and who will lift you up. And I definitely strive to be that friend to people too, because I love my friends and I do want the best for them. And, and then I also will be that friend who like, if you're having a hard time and you just need to like say some stuff that like sounds really bad and cynical and nihilistic, like, i'm there you know (laughs) like let's talk about how fucked up things are let's talk about how how unfair the world is and how fucking horrible it all is it's fine to go there it doesn't mean that like you're like if you believe in any view of nihilism it doesn't mean you're a bad person it doesn't mean you have bad intentions in the world which is again the agenda that jordan peterson has like he has a very binary view of of uh philosophy like if you believe in nihilism you're terrible and you just want hopelessness and it's like no 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 no. it doesn't have to be like that that's so 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 reductive so anyway watch the Queer Eye episode The Handyman Can instead because it's really fun it's really uplifting it makes Jordan Peterson's points better than he does and you don't see Jason shit talking about his dead friends which is much better I think we can all agree. So, anyway, that's my short and sweet analysis of Jordan Peterson's Make Friends with People Who Want the Best for You chapter of The Twelve Rules to Life, an antidote to chaos. And instead, watch The Handyman Can. (laughs) So, I will be back with the next chapter in this series in hopefully sooner than I got this one out, which uh, the next one I'll be covering is Rule 4, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. I already like the sound of that, and I hope you do too. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find me, I am on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. I also have a Patreon. I've been releasing a lot more poetry, and I'll be releasing more written stuff through that. You can find me on all those platforms, and you can also contribute to my wishlist, which people have. I I thank the people again who provided me this awesome new microphone and the setup that I have, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening and supporting the show. See you next time.